Spirit Radio Podcasts. Our parenting expert Katrina Lynch joins me in studio now and today we're going to be talking about how to get your kids involved around the house in the household chores but without it being a chore where it's almost a game it's almost fun and it's not something that you feel you have to have a battle with them about every time but I guess it it also is part of a wider discussion it's not just about doing things about around the house it's about teaching our children certain things and and our hopes for them and all that so Katrina is with me in studio this morning I'm sure all your children did the hoovering the ironing the washing of course of course of course (laughs) I mean they they, they come out practically wanting to do those things Um, what I find fascinating especially with the young toddler is one thing I've noticed is they want to do what you're doing and they want to kind of imitate you exactly and so often that involves whether it be hoovering or uh, peeling potatoes or whatever it is Um, but how do you change that kind of desire for them wanting to mirror you to actually being helpful yeah okay well there are at least two rules of thumb and uh, on on every good idea there's a firm foundation so here's the two uh, rules of thumb that are very important and what the first one of them was stated by a child psychologist um, uh, oh, 30-40 years ago and he said never do for a child what a child can do for themselves okay so that that's one rule of thumb and the second one is remember to encourage the behaviour that you want to increase and ignore insofar as is possible uh, and discourage the behaviour that you want to decrease. So that's kind of like a two-pronged approach that we have in the back of our minds all the time. And I was reading an article there recently. um, I can't remember what newspaper it was in, but um, talking about this exact topic, And I found myself thinking as I read through it, you know, the the author was writing as if this was really news, you know, and really important. And, you know, your children can do these things. And I'm kind of going, Uh, of course, they can. well, of course, (laughs) you know, and I kind of began to wonder, has the modern parent um, decided that they don't want their children to do these things because they don't want to turn them into skivvies. Well, I, I don't do you know. Think? I think it could be part of it, Katrina. I would say probably a big part of it is time, the fact that we're time-strapped. So, for example, if I say to Matthew in the morning, who loves his books, and there's 20 books on the floor, okay, you have to put them all back. He takes a lot longer than than it would take me to do it and I'm late for work but I want him to do it um, yes. so, and I have to help him and I have to show him and it's going to take a long time um, if if he is standing up as he likes to pretend to wash the dishes and usually a cup of water gets thrown from the where he's washing the dishes all over the floor you know the, it, it's 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 great but it, it does take time and it takes a lot of patience as you're teaching especially smaller children so I think parents are just they just want to get everything done really fast and I don't have time for that and it, it's not it's not a nice probably shift in attitude. Well, uh, I think you've made my point for me uh, far more succinctly than I could have done in that it's something that I've said for, for years. Parenting, motherhood, fatherhood is a full-time job. And two jobs into one person does not go. And this is just a fact. This is not 
guilting out anybody or anything. And sadly, we now live in a society that does not support the family and where most couples, in order to get a roof over their heads, have to be dual income. And if you have both parents working outside the home, there is a shortfall. There has to be a shortfall because two jobs, parenting and in your case, media work or whatever, or barristering or doctoring or you can't do both. You Which cannot do both. Which for this topic probably adds another layer of difficulty, right? Because um, if you have that situation where, okay, so Matthew's minded in the morning, for a lot of people, their child will be minded all day. And you're trying to teach them things from a young age, like cleaning up after themselves or putting them, their toys away or putting their spoon in the dishwasher. Mm-hmm. But when that's only happening a certain percentage of the time, I you can't re, it can't, can't be reinforced all the time. How do you teach them then when it can be kind of confusing because they're getting different masters in different places from different people? Well, you have to if you want to teach your child a particular skill set. You've absolutely said it. You have to have the time to do it, and uh, we are very poverty stricken as regards time. So. If you are hoping to teach your child maybe to bring their dishes to the dishwasher or one that will be just a tad more complicated, maybe tie their shoelaces or whatever, you have to give yourself time. If it's going to take time, then you have to give yourself time. So when you're rushing out the door for for work and trying to get other people into the car, that is not the time to start teaching your child, you know, how to do things. So maybe on your day off, um, or in your case, uh, you you work uh, don't work in the morning and don't in the afternoon. Well, you don't work outside the home in the afternoon. In my in, in my opinion, I never it's worked a work day in, in my you life. That. You know, I I worked with girls and 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 lads, and they considered coming to work a day off. You know, but um, so you decide. How long do I think it's going to teach me, take me to teach this uh, skill and then to adjust to the time that's there for it? So if you ask them to help you tidy up the toys, that might be a better way to start. Because if they only put one toy in to the 25 toys that you put in, they're still helping you and you can still encourage that. So Choose something that's going to fix the that's going to be suitable to the amount of time you have. Okay. And so, say you have your day off and you've decided I'm now going to teach uh, my child how to bring their dishes to the dishwasher or to the sink if you don't have a dishwasher. Um, the there you break it down into four four uh, tasks. Okay, in four four ways. The first one, you do it all yourself. The second bit is you do it and they help you. Then you switch that around ever so slightly. And then you put the third one is you put the emphasis on they are doing it and you are helping them. Okay. And then finally, they do it all by themselves with you there encouraging them. And and, and basically, if you take that four four prong approach, you can take it to any task you like. No matter what it is. No and with that four-prong approach, what do you do then, Katrina, if it's going well and they get it and they're putting away the toys or the dishes or whatever and then suddenly the next day you ask them to do it and they just, no, 
Do you have to go back to the beginning? Do you go kind of in the middle where you're helping? Or how do you handle that? No, you don't uh, go back to the beginning because they know how to do it. Um, Again, you see, you're time pressed. If this happens just as you are walking out the door and all that sort of stuff, you are going to have to not so far, not ignore it. It's something you have to revisit. Okay, if you think you have the time to go into a two or three or four minute, you know, tantrum or whatever, it's best to do it there and then if you can. But if you can't, then when you come home that evening and things are nice and quiet and just before you put them to bed or whatever, that is when you revisit. Okay, or for rest or for revisit when everybody is restful relaxed, ready to listen, then you revisit. It's all the oars. And you say something like, do you remember this morning when we were going out to work and I asked you to put your dishes in the dishwasher? And uh, they will probably say yes, or they will probably look on the ground, or they will probably, you will know by their body language. Now, here's a word that has disappeared a lot from our dictionary, from our glossary. Disobedience. Okay, it's very, very important because there are some things in life where you badly need your child to obey you. Running across the road, sticking their fingers in plugs, sticking their hands into the fire, etc, etc. So you need to teach that there is a thing called disobedience. And for those of us who are who want to bring our children up in the love and in the honor of God, it is very important for us to teach that there is a difference and that disobedience undermines a relationship. Okay? So it's very very reasonable for you to say when you disobeyed me, I was very disappointed okay but the main thing was I was disappointed that you didn't do what I told you you don't want to guilt out your child okay it's reasonable to say that you had a reaction to it what age can they understand disobedience and disappointment they can understand it from the from the time you can communicate with them they don't even need to be able to talk back to you Once you know that they understand what you're saying, if you say pick up that fork and they pick up that fork, they can understand what you're saying to them. Okay, you can use stickers if you want to or whatever. Say this is what this is what happens to us, you and me, baby John and mom. This is what happens to us when you do not do what you are told, that the relationship is undermined. Okay. It makes both of us sad because you're not doing what I've told you to do. And that's very important. Very good. And following the four steps, as Katrina has been talking about in terms of trying to teach your kids new things, especially like putting away toys and all that sort of stuff. One, you show them yourself. You show them. You you do it it. all yourself. Then the second time you help them. No, 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 no. They help you. They help you. You're still the first two steps are where you're doing the majority of it. The second time you they help you and you help them and then they do it themselves. Correct. Done. Absolutely. No problem. And look, people are obviously interested in this. We had a story last week, Katrina, about Dyson Hoover's uh, 
for the first time making a, a child's Hoover that actually works. Wow. And they sold out on Amazon. Yeah. But, you know, you look at the, the toys that are kids, like I was going through stuff, looking for stuff from my grandchildren. And you've... All it's all imitation, you know, sort of imitation kitchens and pots and pans and carpentry tools, you know, and all that sort of stuff, because they want to be part of your world. Yeah, and they cash want to in on that. Yeah. Okay, they want to be part of your world. They want to talk to you. They want to be with you, no matter how strapped you are for time. Go home, sit down. Give them a hug. Tell them you missed them. Tell them you love them. Tell them you love being with them. How important and precious they are to you. And do you know what? That was last an awful lot longer than all the work you did at the office today. Yeah, that's a narrow, truer thing was said. Katrina Lynch, our parenting expert, as always. Thank you. Our next guest is a very well-known evangelist and author from London and he's going to be speaking at a special event in the National Boxing Stadium in Dublin tomorrow called the Just One Carol Service. It's really designed to try and bring along Just One. You know, a friend that you've you've kind of thought, oh, I'd really love to share my fate with them a little bit more, but you're nervous about doing it and you're trying to find the right event, the right place, the right person. Well, this could be the one for you. Online to tell us more, I'm delighted to welcome to Spirit Radio, Jay John. Good morning, Jay John. How are good you? Good morning, Wendy, and good morning. Morning to all the listeners as well. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself for those who don't know you. Well, as you said in your introduction, yes, I am an evangelist, but I'm also a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. Uh, I love Jesus, I love life, and I'm just doing my little bit to introduce people to Jesus. So you are just sharing what has helped your life and made you happy. Pretty simple, but um, it, it's it's more than that. You're being very humble because you've written more than 60 books and you speak in front of very large crowds around the world. Is this what you expected when you first started learning more about your faith? No, I, I came to faith uh, when I was a student in London back in 1975. And I, I, I mean, I fell in love with Jesus and Jesus just inspired me and I just wanted to know more about Jesus. I ended up going and studying theology. Uh, I then went and worked in Northern Ireland, actually. I worked at the Christian Renewal Centre in Ross Trevor and I was part of a community there. Uh, and then I worked in a church in Nottingham. Um, and then I started being invited to go and speak at universities and colleges um, and so I, I actually ended up speaking at 102 universities and then churches and then towns. So I, it was just something I think the Lord just opened up. I just kept going through open doors and then the doors just opened up more and more and more. And, and I've been doing it now for 39 years. How would you describe, especially I think, Jay John, what people will be interested in hearing, because I think what holds people back is in terms of sharing their faith is they're kind of nervous about it sometimes. They're nervous of the reaction they'll get or they'll get a hard question they won't be able to answer. What's been your experience over the years, especially for people maybe who haven't come to know their faith yet? Well, uh, that whole area is fascinating. I think so many Christians today, Wendy, have taken... Uh, literally what Jesus said to three disciples, see that you tell no one. Um, But wait a minute, look, if we have Jesus living in us by his Holy Spirit, uh, then the Bible says to us that that Holy Spirit living in us is the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. 
and and therefore we've been empowered and and all we need to do is be ourselves um and just keep the conversation going um it's not our responsibility to assess people's reaction to us um our responsibility is to sow the seed now of course we've got to sow the seed very graciously and sensitively and compassionately um but we've all been commissioned to do that and we need to do it and i i mean if no if andy conomides hadn't told me about jesus when i was a student you and i wouldn't be talking this morning so it's amazing what just one conversation, a little mustard seed, that can that that conversation Absolutely. that can have. Probably this time of year, Christmas is it is it maybe for some people it's an easier time to talk about the gospel message because we can talk about well, what is Christmas all about? What is Advent about anyway? Oh, absolutely, Wendy. I honestly believe Christmas uh, is the best season for us uh, because people are far more receptive. Um, and we can engage them in a way that we can't normally engage people the rest of the year. And we find that people will come to a carol service. They will. They're, they're intrigued about it. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll come to a service. You know, and that's why, you know, we're in Ireland. Um, we're doing a, a carol service um, tonight in Drogheda and then as the one that you mentioned in the boxing stadium tomorrow. Um, many, many people will come and you just don't know what effect that's going to have on their journey of faith. Some of them might progress a little and others of them might have, to quote John Wesley, their hearts strangely warmed. In terms of, and you've, you've touched on it love in a lovely way there, J. John, just that, you know, the idea of a carol service, very non-threatening, much easier to invite someone along to that. Tell us a little bit about the event at the National Boxing Stadium. What can people expect if I'm trying to invite a friend along? How do I describe it? Okay, well, look, to give Christians confidence, give you confidence, Wendy, uh, it's cringe-free. It, it really is cringe-free. You can take a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, a relative, and enjoy singing Christmas carols. And Christmas carols are just incredible. I mean, in terms of the gospel and their words, uh, it, it, they're so inspiring. And within a Christmas atmosphere, lots of fun. And all I'm going to do is unwrap the meaning of Christmas um, in a very down-to-earth, simple, humorous way. And if people want to know more, if people want to embrace it, they can. And and it's all done very sensitively. Um, and we, I mean, everywhere we've been going in the last week, we've been filling theatres and town halls. I mean, absolutely bursting at, at the seams. Um, and people have been responding. And would you say as well, J. John, for, say for somebody, uh, you know, who wants to bring a friend who really doesn't know the Christmas story at all um, and they're just intrigued and they want to learn more, would it be a good event for them? Oh, absolutely. Look, you know, before we're a, we're a Christian, uh, just to use this analogy, we're in like a minus territory. And when we become a believer or a follower of Jesus, you know, we're in plus territory. So bef- when we're in minus territory... Uh, some people might be minus 100, okay, all the way down to minus one, and then you cross the line, okay? Right, look, tonight, tomorrow, the carol services, the carol service in the, 
in the boxing stadium, if you're minus 100, it might actually help you to move to minus 80. If you're minus 40, it might help you to move to minus 30. Move your little step away. If you're minus 10 and under, it might help you cross the line. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. I like it. Do the maths. And will you? Will, can people expect something similar in the event in Drogheda tonight? Then, Jay John. Yeah, absolutely. It will be the same principle: carols, readings, fun, uh, and me uh, explaining the Christmas message. And you know, it, it's just an incredible message to explain. Um, you know, how did an invisible God become visible? How did an intangible God become tangible? How did an unknowable God make himself known? And how can we know this, this God today? Um, and, I mean, it's a, it's a simple message. Sadly, the church hasn't always been good at conveying it simply. And, and hopefully uh, we can clear up some misunderstandings that people have and put the record straight. Well, sounds like it's going to be a wonderful uh, few events. Jay John, thanks so much for joining us on Spirit you, Radio Wendy. this morning. And as Jay John mentioned there, he's going to be speaking tonight in Drogheda at half seven in the TLT Concert Hall. And then tomorrow evening in the National Boxing Stadium in Dublin. You can find out more details and get tickets and all that sort of stuff on evangelical.ie. <laughs> The regulation of termination of pregnancy bill which will allow the introduction of abortion will proceed to the Shannon after passing all stages in the Dáil last night. TDs voted in favour of the abortion legislation by 90 votes to 15 with 12 abstentions. Our next guest entered the Dáil in 2016 leaving behind a career as a primary school teacher and a principal. Sadly it wasn't long before she ran into difficulties with her own party at the time Sinn Féin because of that party's decision not to allow members to vote according to their conscience on the issue of abortion. This led to suspension and finally her resignation from the party in June of this year. As an independent TD she's been very active in proposing humane amendments to the abortion bill which as we've as I've just mentioned there passed through the Dáil last night and will go on to the Shannon on the line to tell us a little bit more about last night's debate and her experience to date. We have independent TD for Offaly Carol Nolan. Carol good morning to you. Good morning, Wendy, and good morning to your listeners. So your debate went uh, late into the late hours of yesterday evening and into the night. Tell us a little bit about your experience. It did, absolutely did. Um, I suppose, to sum it up, it was frustrating and heartbreaking. That'd be the the two words I'd use to describe the whole uh, experience and indeed the whole ordeal. Uh, We proposed a number of very humane and reasonable uh, amendments. You know, we're hearing about democracy all of the time and the need to listen to other views, but... That was far from the case, and I have to say, as an Irish politician and indeed as an Irish woman, I'm ashamed, and anybody could see for them for themselves, indeed with the exchanges that took place on a very regular basis, that there was hardly any part of the debate civilised. I don't believe there was any part, indeed, civilised in, in, in regard to this debate. We put forward very humane amendments. We were very reasonable the minister just did not want to listen. Um, our view wasn't the same view as his, so we were just shot down at, on each occasion. And indeed, there was outbursts of aggression and insults and name-calling and all of the rest of it. But I, I feel myself, it's absolutely shameful. I mean, we're all legislators in there, and while we hold different views, 
we're entitled to articulate those views and indeed make legislation better. That's the democracy, you know, and, and the whole democra- democratic thing to do is to try and ensure that the legislation going forward is done properly. And with this abortion bill, I mean, it is extreme, it is harsh, it's unnecessarily harsh, and it is over the top. And I've made those comments to the minister last night. Were you surprised, Carol, throughout the process? And uh, uh, people might have been following the Oireachtas Health Commission now to the door just. And and I think for anybody, if they did watch, you know, even a short a short bit of those discussions, the attitude did certainly at times to be even one could describe it as petulant. But were you surprised that some of your amendments um, were not met with any kind of real kind of proper discussion? Um, or, or did you expect that they would all be shot down? No, I, I was I was shocked. I mean, I thought, in, in all honesty, that these were very re, you know reasonable amendments. We had the whole notification amendment concerning minors, and there's only notification um, in terms of a minor and the parent being contacted in guidelines only. Now, I feel that this is such a serious issue, and indeed, you know, for any minor to find herself pregnant, of course, she needs the support of her parents. And I felt that notification one definitely should have been accepted. As, you know, the conscientious objection, I would say the same thing for that also. Conscientious objection for our GPs, our pharmacists, our midwives and nurses and other healthcare workers. Conscientious objection is a fundamental human right. And yet we see the Irish Parliament has, has turned its back on that right and ignored those people. And, and I just feel that that's a disgrace. That in the Ireland of 2018, you know, there's much talk of this new republic. But yet what they've done is they've ostracised people. They've sidelined people. They've shut them down. We've seen that, of course, with the GPs. Minister Harris's refusal to meet GPs. And indeed, the first time GPs heard that the abortion services would be led or expected to be led by them was when they heard on the radio. I mean, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous. And I just feel that, you know, there hasn't been fair play here. And I do feel that the government will rule the day and indeed all of those who jumped up and down trying to get this extreme and, and over-the-top legislation through. I feel, you know, we were looking at international... How do you feel, standards. Carol, about the point that it is, I suppose, something that the Health Minister and indeed many others in Fianna Gael certainly kept saying, look, the, the people have voted, we don't need to be discussing it again, you know, the people have spoken on this issue. How did you feel about that defence? But the people didn't speak on the legislation, and that was our our whole point. I mean, we went in and genuinely did our best to try and make government listen, and indeed those other TDs who were on the other side of the debate. We respected that, but people did not vote on Simon Harris's legislation. They did not vote for children with disabilities not to have the right to protection. They did not vote um, in terms of the taxpayer funding abortions to the tune of 12 million as a start. They did not vote on those issues. People simply voted to repeal the Eighth Amendment. They had the choice whether to retain the Eighth Amendment, as we know, or repeal it. They voted to repeal. They did not vote on the legislation. Therefore, for the government and indeed any TD on the pro-choice side, to be saying that people voted on this. That's incorrect, completely incorrect and indeed misleading. Well, let's have a short listen to what Fianna Gael TD Kate O'Connell and what she had to say during the debate mm. last night. Yeah, I, I felt it. But we won. And when you get to 51%, you'll get your way. But we won in May and we will get our way. And you can take your seven minutes and your two minutes and you can get up there and talk about published data I don't know if you'd know one end of it from another, but go for it. But you lost, and it must be hurting. 
That's just a short expert of um, the Fianna Gael TD, Kate O'Connell there, Carl. Was that indicative of the type of tone? I mean, I think a lot of people would be kind of shocked to think, wow, these are our public representatives kind of speaking in this way to one another. Yes, unfortunately it was. And indeed, I was the subject of, of, you know, character assassination at one stage myself. There was name calling throughout. Um, indeed, our, our amendments were labelled as misogynistic, even though I'm a woman. Um, I felt, you know, the whole way through, we were insulted. We were, you know, they, they tried to silence us any way they could. There was interruption after interruption. Um, there was no respect shown whatsoever for anybody who, who held a different view. Were you surprised, Carol, that there were, I mean, I know there was 12 abstentions, but just 15 votes against. Were you surprised there wasn't more support, especially from, for example, Fianna Fáil, who'd been given a free vote on the issue? Yes, I was very disappointed um, with the Fianna Fáil TDs, um, given that they're grassroots and indeed at their Ardish, that, you know, they came out with a pro-life stance and advocated for that. It was disappointing to see, you know, that only four Fianna Fáil TDs actually voted against the legislation last night. And and I hope that the public do realise this because what I hope won't happen is for many Fianna Fáil TDs to stand on doorsteps come election time and tell people they're pro-life. That certainly wasn't the indication last night at all. Only four, as I say, voted against the legislation. It was very disappointing because when we go back to before the referendum in March, there was 32 TDs and that voted that voted against the you know the holding of the referendum because they had genuine concerns like myself were pro life and yet we only see four out of uh, out of twenty over twenty that would have voted and would have claimed to have been pro life now um, voting against the legislation and as I say this is an extreme bill so I would have expected those TDs to step up I would have expected them to represent their membership and represent what happened at that at the Ardish and indeed the fact that they had a free vote it shows that there was absolutely no excuse for them mm. not to vote against so the extreme bill. So finally just ask you Carol Nolan what happens next there's meant to be a deadline of January 1st for abortion to be introduced in GP surgeries and hospitals across the country um, is there is that it though is there any more opportunity I mean all along the way you've been trying to voice your concern put forward amendments um, but is it a done deal now? Well what happens next is it goes into the Shannon and no doubt many of those senators, like ourselves, many of them, you know, who are pro-life and hold genuine views and indeed genuine concerns, will do their utmost to try and argue the same points that we've been arguing. But I, I would be concerned, and at this point I suppose I would be disheartened, um, the fact that our views weren't listened to in the Dáil Chamber would suggest that the senators' views won't be listened to either, which is shameful. But I do hope that they will stand up. I do hope that they, they will do their utmost um, to fight for the unborn. Because, look, this is very serious. You know, this is painted as health care, but real health care doesn't have a victim. What we want to do as pro-life TDs and indeed pro-life representatives, and that includes senators and councillors throughout the country, we want to do the best for both the woman and the baby. And abortion, which is the ending of a life, should never be the solution to that. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very concerned about the way things have gone, the direction that things have gone in, in this country, which is supposed to be a democracy. I've seen the opposite. And I know the GPs, the nurses, midwives, we've all seen the opposite, where our views are not being respected or listened to. Carol Nolan, thank you so much for joining us on Spirit Radio this morning. That's independent TD Carol Nolan there just sharing with us a little bit about her experience as the legislation has now passed through the Dáil in relation to abortion and moves on to the Shannon. 
It's time now for our weekly Life in 5 chat where we get to hear about someone's life. It's a really simple concept. We give them a list of questions, they pick five. Today's one's a bit different because our guest was pre-recording an interview with our producer Steve and um, he had so much to say that Steve didn't really get past the first question. So they just kind of went with the flow with this one. So uh, Steve, it's probably not the first time this has happened. But <laughs> no, no, it probably isn't. Uh, this guy, his name is Dermot Landy, uh, absolutely lovely guy from uh, Tipperary but lives in Killarney. He really has an amazing story, and um, I did. I asked him, "Tell us a little bit about yourself before we got into and the that questions." Was to get going. And then I just couldn't stop him, and at the end, I just laughed and said, "Look, um, the questions are sort of redundant. It's a beautiful story." And to start with, Dermot describes a very traumatic event from his childhood. So, my name is Dermot. I'm a tip man living in Kerry. At eight years old, my father left our home. He was a, an alcoholic and a very abusive man, but a really good worker. But when, when he drank, he was very abusive. And a typical Friday night for me was uh, I'd spend it with my family out in the field waiting for him to go to sleep so he could go back into the house. At the age of eight, my mum, after a, a tyranny, decided to get him rid of him from the house. And the day he left, I never forget the day when he cycles out the gate, he had a bike, and I still remember, I can still hear the, the bottle. My mum threw a bottle after him and it crashed on the, on, the, on the ground. I heard the glass breaking. And I still can remember it. As he cycled out the gate, I cried uncontrollably I wanted to go with him and inside something broke that day and I believe I began you know um, a journey from there of trying to fix something on the inside that I tried everything to do I tried to medicate it I tried relationship after relationship I tried everything to fill that space and I remember that in the worst parts of my drinking and drug taking I was constantly pushing that down on the inside I went through a lot at a very young age I try to keep the smile on my face like most Irish people do, you know, push it under the carpet and not deal with it. I think a lot of what German is saying, Steve, people can identify in different ways depending on their on their life experience, whether it's some, a yeah. huge traumatic event like he experienced mm-hmm. or whether it's, you know, the smaller things that we just push down and, and they have an impact. And, and for him, in, in his, his life just kind of continued to go downhill. It went downhill and you kind of think of, you know, an eight-year-old boy and, and how will an experience like that affect him. So in our next clip, I suppose, he describes some of how his life went from there. So around the age of maybe around 13 or 14, I began to seriously get into drugs and alcohol. I spent the next 13 years of my life as an addict, went through all types of, of, of brokenness, came to a place in my life where I decided that, you know, this life wasn't worth living, you know. Um, I began to hear a voice to tell, tell me that maybe you should take your life. Um, and one night, uh, um, out of desperation, really, uh, and a cry for help, I, I tried to commit suicide, but the rope broke. And I ended up going from that place into a local, they call it uh, St. Michael's in Clonmel. It's a, it's a place where they bring people who have psychiatric problems. My life was, that point was at my lowest point from addiction. Uh, in terms of then what happened next, Steve, did you get to move yeah, on? Yeah, we did. Like if you just think, like Dermot is still in his late 20s, you know, all of this has happened to him. From and, such a young age. You know, and, and after this experience that he talks about, it's hard to imagine the, the feeling of hopelessness and loneliness and failure. But then something really unexpected happened and it involved a three-day trip to County Kerry to Killarney. I had kept a job after I came out of detox for a little while and I worked in the nighttime and I worked for a company that loaded trucks every night. So this is what we did in the nighttime. We loaded up vehicles. So this guy had taken a contract in Kerry and this is how I ended up there. I ended down for three days. And while there, I met some people and there were Christians. So I ended up going to a meeting one night. It was a Thursday night. 
when I sat there and I listened to this man speak about God in a way I've never heard before, I'd never heard about how you could have a personal relationship with God and how through having that relationship, he could deal with your life in a way where he repaired the brokenness that was in you. And that sounded really good to me because they didn't know anything about me and I sat at the back. He spoke about Jesus and how I could have a new life in God. It sounded great and I said, that's fantastic. At the end, they gave me chocolate biscuits and fig rolls and we had a cup of tea. So the next day I got up, I have to admit that the voice that was telling me to jump off the pool table was the very same voice that was telling me now that you need to leave, come out of here. These people, you know, just, they're a bit weird. You know, leave this place. That's the voice. But in the love that I felt from this this man in that meeting that night, I decided to go back and visit him the next day. Uh, I went into his office and he sat with me for three hours. And for that three hours, he began to talk to me about how I could have a new life in God and how having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ would change my life that the reason Jesus came was not just as some kind of a principle or a lifestyle, but it could actually change your life, change your heart. I had never had anybody spend three hours with me and really had genuine concern for me. He asked me, would I accept Christ as my saviour? And I didn't understand all that, but it sounded like there was truth in it. So in a, in a simple uh, prayer, I asked Christ into my heart. I said, Jesus, come into my life. I make it the Lord of my life. I don't understand it all, but I do that by faith and I ask you to come in. And he put his hands on me and said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he put his hands on me, this heat came over my body. And I, I, I fell on the floor. I couldn't stand up. I was like, I just lost kind of any control of my body. I fell on the floor. And on the floor, I had this experience with God. All I can say is, I had my eyes closed, but it wasn't dark. It was, it was like it was light inside. And... Uh, when it was all over, the prayer was over, I got back up off the floor and I knew something had happened to me. Uh, I didn't physically change, but I knew something had happened on the inside. Mm-hmm. And from that point forward, I began to realize that the compulsion for the addiction I had was completely taken away. I had no more uh, uh, desire for uh, drugs or alcohol or drink or cigarettes. I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day and it was just completely desire was taken out of my life. And I began to walk that life out, that new life. That is just incredible. I mean, just to hear the freedom from that addiction. Not the first time we've heard someone say how yeah. faith helped them do it, but it gets even more incredible in terms well, of what Well, it does. Next. First of all, I can vouch for, you know, Dermot's life changed and it it has remained changed. He came in here, you know, looking a, a very healthy man, a beautiful wife, a little girl, very happy family. And it was just lovely to see that uh, a life transformed. Not only that, he's one of the driving forces behind tomorrow's event that you, you were talking to Jay John about, the, um, uh, the, the Just One uh, Christmas Carol service. He's, he's, he's very enthusiastic about sharing. Especially um, based on with his own others. experience. Yeah, it was yeah, one he, person that talked to him and, as he said, just yeah. listened to him and was concerned about him. Uh, and he is very enthusiastic about sharing that with others. But there's also a really amazing epilogue to the story, reaching right back to the eight-year-old boy who cried when his father left home. Because in this final clip, Dermot says something was stirred in him while reading the Bible, and it was to do with his father. One day I saw in the scriptures that it says, you know, if you honour your father and your mother, it would go well for you. And there was a great promise in that scripture. And I said, simple prayer. And I am just talking to God, out of, like I'm talking to you here. Uh, I said, God, how can I honour my father when I don't know where he is? Three weeks later... My mom sitting having tea, she told me that someone had told her that my father was in the local mental home in, in Tlamel. So 
in trepidation and fear, I said, God was answering my prayer. I drove from my house to where he was in the mental home and I sat in the car park. I, I was sitting there shaking and trembling. I said, I was going to go in and visit this man. I hadn't seen him for 25 years. He had caused a lot of problems. I had great hate and anger for him. Uh, but I walked into that room. I never, I went into, a, it was a cold place, you know, really clinical place. And there was a lot of noise there, doors locked, and I felt a bit bit kind of apprehensive. And they put me into this waiting room, and I still remember it smelled of smoke. It was really old and grey and brown. So they went away for, it seemed, about 15 minutes, and suddenly the door opened. I could hear the footsteps and the door opened. And they brought this man in, up in his 60s now, uh, dishevelled, grey hair and foaming at the mouth, in the sense he was drooling. He had drank himself to a place where he was lost his mind. They sat him on a chair and they left and I sat across from him. And in that, in that moment, I was able to say, um, Richard, I'm your son, Dermot. Uh, I haven't seen you for 25 years. Um, but I've come today to say that I forgive you and I ask you to forgive me. And in that moment, something happened on the inside. That eight-year-old boy who had pushed everything down was suddenly free. And I found a great freedom there. And we went on for, I could tell you the story, we went on for three years. Uh, he came back to his right mind. He was absolutely conscious. He knew who I was. Um, I prayed for him regularly and uh, we had three years. And he went home then to, I believe, to heaven. Where, uh, someday I might see him again. I'm going to see him again. I know I will. So restoration was in my life. This is the message of my life that I carry, that there's nothing too broken that God can't repair if we're willing to take that step out in faith. A very powerful message to finish on in that Life in Five chat that Steve Johnson had with Dermot Landy. What an incredible story of healing and restoration. And that was all through a personal encounter with his faith with Jesus. We'll be continuing our Life in Five series every Thursday shortly after 11. If some of the issues that were discussed in that interview have impacted you, the Samaritans helpline number is 116123. If you're touched by addiction, I urge you to check out teglin.ie or indeed the Chinaclo community.ie or alcoholicsanonymous.ie. Many of you will know our next guest very well and perhaps you'll know her for winning the Eurovision back in 1996 with the song The Voice. Since then she's turned toward the world. She's performed for royalty, presidents and even the Pope. And each year she embarks on a Christmas concert tour following the huge success of her best-selling album Oh Holy Night. The tour is actually already almost sold out but there's a few tickets left so we'll be hearing all about that today on the line with singer Emer Quinn. Emer, good morning to you. Well, good morning. It's lovely to talk to you. I know it's taken you back 22 years to Eurovision 1996, but when you look back now and you think of all that you have achieved in the interim, did you think that you were going to have such a long-standing career in singing? Um, I certainly didn't think I was going to have the particular career I did. Um, I mean, I, I think when everybody you know, has has designs, particularly people who are studying music and work so hard to train at their instrument and everything, would hope that they would have a profession always in music, be it performing or teaching some way or other. But I never, never, never for a moment expected that I would have had the experiences in my life that I've had. And that is really all due to just that that little moment of serendipity uh, standing on stage at a Christmas concert um, in St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, singing a song called Winter, Fire and Snow, a really beautiful setting of the MacDara Woods poem, Fire, Snow and Carnivale. And it was written by Brendan Graham. 
and he was sitting in the audience and he heard me sing this song with uh, a choir that I was singing with called Anuna. And um, afterwards he approached me and asked me, he said, I have a project in the new year that um, I would love to for you to consider. And that was the Eurovision. And at that, before that, I thought, you know, um, I'm always... I want to be a professional chorister. I want to be immersed in early music, in choral music, in sacred music. That's my life. And um, all of a sudden, that uh, kind of idea of who I was going to become was blown out of the water and anything was possible. All of these paths literally sprung open physically and, you know, uh, mentally, emotionally sprung open in front of me. And my life was was changed forever in that chance moment. Do you ever get sick of singing the voice? Never. In fact, I love it so much. I sing it at every single concert. And people and love hearing it. It is I a song. I wouldn't be let out of the building without singing it, but <laughs> it has a tremendous energy about it, that song. It builds and builds and builds. It's really invigorating to sing. It's really exciting to sing, you know, and the older I get and the more kind of across my singing and my instrument I get, the stronger my voice is, the more vocal colour it has, the more enjoyable it is to sing. And I've just, I've recorded an album with the RT Concert Orchestra that's due for release next year. I'm just finishing mixing it, actually. And um, and so I decided, because I have had the most amazing opportunity to sing that song so often with orchestra over the years, my favourite way to sing it, and um, I'd never recorded it with orchestra. So that's featuring on my new album 20-something years later. Fantastic. And really just prove just how timeless it is. I mean, you've sang, as I mentioned in the introduction, Emer, for so many esteemed people and for audiences all over the world. Have you got a, a favourite place to perform? Um, funnily enough, it's it, the most, I suppose, special place and the most special audience that I have is in a theatre in Dunleary called The Pavilion because it's there that um, I, that I think I finally felt like I have made a connection, a complete connection with my audience. In fact, what I think was that I had always made the connection, but I'd never really felt it back. And year after year, the audience keeps coming back to the pavilion and I see the same faces and they keep coming up to me to look for more CDs to pass on to their families. They have, I say, you already have eight of these CDs. And they say, I know, but I'm giving it to such and such my cousin in America. <laughs> you know. And so Christmas literally is not Christmas without it. And we're there every single year. I have become part of a people's Christmas tradition and they've become part of mine. And for me, it's just this most, it's this extraordinarily humbling experience where such a crucial uh, point in a person, in a person's calendar, I am, where people, I suppose, are seeking. They're really looking for something to fill a space, to take somebody by the hand and guide them into the spiritual space that is Christmas and take them away from the distractions. And so many people year after year are coming to sit with us in our music to allow us to be that guide for them. As and as a consequence, because the relationship has become so strong between us and the audience, the audience guides us into the same place too and it becomes a, a real exchange of energy and emotion in the room. As you say, it's so lovely that it's part of people's tradition at Christmas and yours too. So what can people expect for those who haven't been to your gig in the pavilion at Christmas time? What can they expect from the evening then, Emer? 
Well, I bring along some of my really closest friends who play in a quartet together, the Mamisa String Quartet, the Mason sisters on um, violin and cello, and Shunyri on second violin, and Mary Louise Bow on uh, viola. And then my good pal Robbie Overson from Bray, he comes to play guitar. And so it's a bunch of us, and I have arranged the Christmas, the traditional Christmas carols that you know and love, I've arranged them in my own way, in the way that I've interpreted them from singing them over the years. So some of them are quite different. For example, Silent Night, I sing in a minor key, and this really kind of sparkly, um, a kind of like frosty, um, a frosty scene. I don't know. I do also um, the Coventry Carol in, in a way that the Coventry Carol has always shook me as being quite a, a macabre kind of a thing. So I, I, I take these carols and I interpret them. I put the soundscape behind them to reflect how my relationship has been with them since childhood when I first sang in a little town of Bethlehem, age four, in St. Prairie's, in St. Mary's Priory Church in, in Tala Village, where I grew up. And this Christmas music has been part of my life ever since. And so um, I also obviously sing Oh Holy Night in the folk way that I've become known for singing it. And um, I sing some new Christmas material that I've written um, that I sit at piano and sing that. They have a really, really beautiful Steinway in the pavilion that I get to play, which is which is so much fun. And of course, I sing the voice. <laughs> Of course, as you said, you can't go anywhere without without singing that beautiful song. Well, yeah. you it sounds like it's, it's going so to be... it's so energizing with the quartet and everything. The string sound is so beautiful with it. It sounds like it's going to be an absolutely beautiful concert. Thanks so much for chatting to us on Spirit Radio this morning. That singer Emer Quinn there, and just to let you know the details of that concert we were chatting about, it's called a Christmas concert. It's taking place in the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary in South Dublin this Saturday, the eighth of December at eight pm. Well, the government has announced that a referendum to reduce the waiting period for divorce is going to be held next year on the 24th of May. It'll be on the same day as the local and European elections. I think for a lot of people, when this story broke this week in the papers, and there's been some discussion on it, you might have kind of felt, where did this come from? It's come out of the of the blue and has it leapfrogged other issues in the process. On the line to tell us a little bit more about the uh, referendum and indeed on the government's pro- proposal, we have psychiatry professor Patricia Casey on the line. Good morning, Patricia. Patricia, how are you? Good morning, Wendy. I'm well, thank you. Were you expecting this referendum announcement? Well, I wasn't completely uh, unsurprised by it because it has been in the air for about a year or even longer. Um, it's been it's been talked about that the uh, I think it was Josephita Medigan talked about reducing the waiting time uh, a year and a half, two years ago even. So it's it's kind of been in the air, but I suppose for it to um, happen now, um, you know, with, without any recent discussion, it's a bit of a surprise, but, but not altogether. So uh, take us back to obviously the first divorce referendum was in 1995. <coughs> what was inserted into the constitution? then and what is this referendum then proposing? Well the, the um, as far as I remember um, the last referendum uh, put into the constitution that, that you know it, it, it reasserted or asserted the primacy of marriage but that it could be dissolved um, if there was a waiting period of four years. Um, what is proposed now is that that will drop to two years, but it's also being suggested that it would be taken out of the Constitution and dealt separately by the government uh, in legislation 
um, alone. Okay, so, so there's kind of two issues there. So maybe we'll touch on the first. What do you think of, of reducing the, the waiting period for, down to two years then? Well, I mean, I, I think, I think four, four years has worked well. On the other hand, it is a long time. And if after, I would have thought two years is a sensible compromise, let me put it like that. Because I think that if a marriage has broken up and is, is irrevocably, has irrevocably broken down, it's not going to mend after two years of breakdown. That would be unusual um, in my experience. So I think that two years is a sensible compromise. Certainly waiting four years for many people can be a big burden. They can't get on with doing other things in their lives. Um, it's, an, uh, I think, a, a noose around their neck is probably a strong word, but it's certainly a burden that people have to have to carry the, the four-year wait. So I think a two-year, a, a reduction to two years um, is... Is, is, a, is a reasonable alternative. As you say, it's kind of a compromise. But do you think or do you hope, Professor Casey, that perhaps this will be an opportunity for, I mean, the reason we're having this referendum or having this discussion at all is because a recognition that sometimes marriages get into trouble and sometimes they're in so much trouble that they break up. But we rarely discuss, well, can we do something as a society, as a culture to try and help those marriages in the first place? Oh, I- I- indeed. One would hope that that would be um, discussed in the course of the referendum, but um, given the track record this government has of referendums and how they're conducted, I doubt that that will happen, unfortunately. But I think that's why the two-year wait is important, that it will afford people the opportunity to seek help for their marriage, to seek ways of ways of of, um, of, of mending it, if, if that is within the bounds of possibility. Um, I mean, thankfully, we have a, a, a relatively low divorce rate, and I think because many people do seek help for their marriages when they seem to be in difficulty and, and the help they're getting would ostensibly seem seem to be beneficial. So I think that should continue. And that's why I think anything less than two years would be would would, would concern would concern me that people might might um, at the first sign of troubles in a marriage or the first breakup might then head for the divorce court straight away rather than trying to repair it and and rebuild the marriage again. I hope that discussion will take place, but as I said, I am not very, very optimistic. You're not hopeful for that. In this discussion, I would imagine much of it will focus on the adults in this relationship, but of course, in many marriages, there are children too. Um, yes. I'm sure through your work over the years, you've probably seen um, the impact that divorce can have on children, and that probably needs to form part of the discussion as well. Oh, indeed. I mean, I deal with adults, but when children grow up and become adults, um, you know, um, marital breakdown can have a significant impact, huge impact, in fact, particularly when they lose touch with their parents. As a significant lose, as a significant number do lose touch with one of the parents, usually, usually the father. And um, fathers have, have great difficulty maintaining access because divorces can become very acrimonious. And even in no-fault jurisdictions like we have here, that means that that people can get get a divorce without um, blame being apportioned. Unlike the UK, where they they have fault-based divorce, where people um, um, you know it would be divorce on the grounds of unreasonable behaviour or some other ground. That doesn't apply in Ireland. No grounds need to be provided. But notwithstanding that divorce has still become acrimonious. And and 
fathers particularly and grandparents, we mustn't forget the importance of grandparents as well, do become estranged from their children and, and grandchildren simply through um, often just malevolence on the part of the other party. Yeah, and, and that is something that needs to be discussed and looked and as well. And that has an effect then on children. As children, their school suffers, schooling suffers, they become disruptive at school, they don't perform as well. Um, and, um, and and then as adults, it can affect their relationships and how they view relationships and they, they view relationships with mistrust and often will be reluctant to get married because they don't want to see that marriage breaking down as their that of their parents did so it does have it does have knock-on effects um, and I think the the motif should be that we should try and build strong marriages that should be the motif principal motif rather than break up marriages yeah and, and ask how can we do that and how can we better support that as a society well that leads me to my next question then because the other part of this referendum Patricia as you touched on was taking marriage out of the constitution how do you feel about this part of the proposal well I'm totally opposed to this part of the proposal. I think marriage is an important institution and the, the constitution recognises institutions and, and I think this, this, this is, is one that should remain in the, in the constitution. I think more importantly, if it does go back to the, uh, is taken out and it's left up to the um, uh, Iraqis completely, um, I think we will see extremely liberal divorce within a few years. We've seen what happened with the uh, abortion legislation. Um, it's even more liberal than they uh, suggested it was going to be when people voted on it. And I think the same will happen, that um, gradually marriage will be eroded and people will come to the position of saying, oh, marriage doesn't doesn't matter. Um, you know, if two, a couple can live together or get married, it doesn't actually matter. We'll just take this out of the Constitution. It has no place there. I, I know what the, I know. I can I can see the headlines, you know, old-fashioned, you know, De Valera, 1950s, all of those kinds of, of um, canards will be, will be, will be raised. Um, but I think it would be disastrous because ultimately, um, a few years down the road, the law they enact after the referendum would be changed and we might have a waiting time of three months or some, something crazy like that. Yeah, maybe, maybe Patricia, I know you're not hopeful, but perhaps part of the discussion will be on that. I mean, in another referendum a number of years ago, a lot of the discussion was how important marriage was, you know, how how important it was to people, all that sort of stuff. And as you say, that could very quickly, that, that, that dialogue very quickly change. Do we need to bring it back to just the positive impact that strong marriages have on culture? And when marriage is strong and family is strong, so too is society. Yes, and indeed in cultures like the US now, the divorce rate is dropping again for the first time in, in decades. So perhaps, you know, other countries are seeing or having a, having a different perspective on these kinds of issues than, than we have at, at the moment. Um, and, and maybe that insight from the US will permeate here in due course. Time will tell. Professor Patricia Casey, thanks so much for joining us on the programme this morning. Thanks for listening to our Spirit Radio podcast. Don't miss out. Subscribe today. Find out how at spiritradio.ie.